you follow up in two days and you say, are you ready for the next secret of the universe? Did you do this step? And they'll say, yes, what's next? And, and so it becomes, it's almost a gamification of the stuff that they want to do. And that was just nothing but pain before has now been turned into something that's really quite easily done. You're listening to Your Financial Planner Now What, the podcast to help you fast track your career by bringing you meaningful conversations on topics that influence new financial planners, their careers, and the lives of their clients. Welcome back for another great episode. Today, we're joined by Dr. Maura Summers, a clinical neuropsychologist, a professor, the founder of Money, Mind, and Meaning, and an executive coach whose work focuses on financial psychology. She is also the author of the book, Advice That Sticks, which is currently being read by the FPA Activate Book Club. And we're honored to sit down with her today to discuss all things money and mind. Straight ahead, Dr. Summers explores how to motivate clients, how to listen actively, and how to follow through to help your clients continue to make progress in their financial lives. The College for Financial Planning is the oldest CFP education provider in the country and the exclusive home to professional designations like the CRPC and APMA. The college brings a classroom to your home or office with HD videos and streaming classes. Alumni from the College for Financial Planning report increases to their earnings, client base, and even their job satisfaction year after year. Learn how you can be their next successful graduate at cffpinfo.com. Well, thanks for joining us today, Moira. It's a pleasure. So you are a clinical psychologist and the author of the book, Advice That Sticks, that came out earlier this year. And I am so excited to have you on. I can't tell you how many planners I talk to where there's just so much frustration about their clients who don't implement the great advice that they give them. Mm-hmm. But from your perspective, what really prompted you to write this book? Well, I too have been um, concerned about the fact that so many people are struggling to implement good financial advice and the fact that it doesn't get acted on compromises everybody. It compromises individuals in our society. It compromises their families. It has huge implications for public policy when you've got this huge cohort of people who are facing impoverished retirements and all of the the kind of healthcare decisions that that involves. Um, So then there are the the concerns about what that does to people who are trying to help them and how can we just get better at helping them out so that we as the advisors are more satisfied with our work at the end of the day and that clients and the broader society are better served by the work that we do. I don't quite know how to frame this question the right way um, because it's not about pointing fingers as who's the problem. Right. From your perspective, where are the, where are the fundamental issues with advice that doesn't get implemented? I think that it, it doesn't lie at any any one person or system's feet. I think it's a multifactorial problem, Hannah. Um, there are s- certainly, there is much about North American culture that flies in the face of sound financial advice. You know, we are, we are bombarded 24 hours a day with all kinds of ideas on how to part with our money. Um, and, and a message that if we don't own this or if we don't do this, that we are somehow less desirable um, as people or less successful. So there's, you know, societal contributions to um, financial 
problems. Um, and there are some predictable and preventable errors that advisors themselves make or you know anybody within financial services professions. I'm, I'm using advisors very broadly there to include accountants and bankers and credit counselors as well as investment advisors. Um, there are just some things that we, mistakes that we see crop up at the level of the advisor time and again. There are some things that reside really within the individual client, their own history with money, their own level of financial literacy. There are some parts of the advice itself that contributes to, what, to its likelihood of flying or not flying. Some advice is simply harder to take than others, and we, we actually know a great deal about what makes um, some advice harder than others. Yeah, so those are the, the big five, the big five factors that contribute the domain of finances itself, what characteristics of the specific advice that's being given, what the clients do, what the advisor and the advisory team do, and then what are some of the broader societal uh, contributors, including what are the inherent defaults in systems that either promote or uh, help to thwart financially desirable behaviors in the long term. You first started talking, it's like, oh, that's a really interesting point. Like we talk about, I hear a lot of conversations about how we can differentiate ourselves from other financial planners, but really what we're doing is we're competing against all of the different places that our clients are being asked to spend their time and their money. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's, that's a really kind of sobering idea. Well, you know, it's one of the things that makes financial advice hard to take in terms of the advice characteristics itself. You're asking people to um, forgo immediate pleasure for the sake of a future self that may be literally decades down the road. Um, you're asking them to forgo something certain, right? Like that thing that they could purchase today or that experience that they could have today for something that's pretty, pretty ill-defined or pretty vaguely um, thought of again, farther down the road. There's a lot about good financial advice that's a lot like good lifestyle advice, which is that it all sounds very easy. We all know that um, carrots are better for us than cheesies, but um, why, why do we not then do those things? Because it's not just a matter of head knowledge, it turns out. It's uh, it's a matter of yearning and it's a matter of pleasure and it's a matter of competing time, competing demands on our time and our energy and our money. Is that a problem that financial planners can help with or do clients kind of have to have that internally figured out before they walk into our office? I think uh, advisory teams can do a lot to help with that. We, we know that there are lots of things that will, will help people sort of gain access to their best self. We know lots of kind of hacks that get around the willpower problem. So when you think about what banks do, for example, Hannah, um, why is there such a, a success in terms of people paying their mortgages every month? Why does, why does that work? Why do the vast majority of people make their mortgage payments? You lose your house. Yeah. Well, in, in, in part because they don't have to do anything once they sign the initial paperwork. Hmm. 
the bank the banks make darn good sure that the mortgage payments come out automatically without you know a client having to rethink about that decision remember that decision remember to act upon um, the knowledge that the mortgage payment is due the de- the defaults are just set up once you sign that initial paperwork the good behavior follows without you ever really having to think about it again and Similarly, financial advisors are trying to figure out ways to make uh, help clients make one decision initially that renders all a host of subsequent decisions unnecessary. So, if you set up, um, if you sign the paperwork to contribute to your pension, your four hundred one k, or in Canada, your RRSP. Um, then once you've signed that, the default is that the payments will get made. And in order to undo that, people have to go through a a series of steps that are quite manageable, but nevertheless, they require action to undo that step. And so um, the fact is that most people are, we're just far too lazy to uncheck a box. And so the default reigns supreme. And the best the best willpower hacks are those things, those steps that allow people to use their willpower to make the right decision initially, and then just to have habit and defaults carry on from there. We know similar things exist with respect to um, savings and earnings. The more we can do to make these things automatic, the better. You know, it it was funny when you gave the mortgage example, my immediate thought was, you know, tying it to retirement or, you know, you're going to be the bag lady under the, you know, the overpass. (laughs) Yeah, it turns out that fear doesn't, um, it's a really short term motivator and it doesn't, it's insufficient um, much of the time to really result in lasting behavior change. So think about somebody who's had a mild heart attack and has been told that she needs to lose weight and stop smoking. She may be uh, very virtuous and motivated because she's just, you know, had a, had a life threatening event occur. Um, But that fear we habituate to emotion. Um, Fear is one that we tend to habituate to quite rapidly, in fact. And so uh, over time, people pick up the cigarettes again and, um, and we need to get better systems in place to help them persist on these hard behavior changes. So when, you know, you think about the more, go back to the mortgage example, Hannah, um, people could be uh, highly, highly motivated to keep their house. Of course they would be, and highly scared to lose it. But that emotion is not nearly as strong Um, a driver of behavior, as is a simple default action that's been set up. Because you can be really motivated to do something, but then forget to do it. Pure old normal human forgetting or overwhelm um, contributes a lot to advice not getting followed. Paperwork that gravitates to the bottom of a pile or, or just gets forgotten about. It's not that people made an active decision to not follow advice. It's that they just, it it wasn't top of mind anymore. And it just kind of fell off the radar. You know, the term decision fatigue came up when you were talking Mm. about, you know, you want, we want to help clients make one decision that makes future decisions for them as as well. 
Mm-hmm. Do you see decision fatigue? I mean, is that kind of what you're talking about or? Sure. That's, that's one of the things that we try and avoid. Um, and, and part of what financial advisors can learn to do better is to, um, you know, to give advice that, um, to understand that often clients are coming to you because of decision fatigue or because they're trying to avoid it. They don't know which of these 76 mutual funds is better than the other, and they don't want to pour through the prospectus for each one. They want you to do it. And and that's a great thing that they can trust that you would help them identify what's best for them. So when you think about differentiating yourself or promoting yourself as an advisor, certainly one of the things that you can promise um, is that you help to simplify decision-making. And that's a great thing. And and it's so interesting that that is the value proposition for clients. Huh. Like you don't have to prove your value through making things complicated. Absolutely. You actually prove your value by making it simple. Absolutely. You've talked about motivators to get people to change their behavior, kind of some of these lifestyle um, things. What are the other main motivators that help clients actually create change in their lives? You know, it's it's really hard. The first thing I want to say about that, Hannah, is that it's so hard to motivate clients from without. Mm. Um, and, and often we can get temporary agreement or acquiescence in an office, especially if we've kind of got the gift of the gab or we're skilled persuaders. You can, you can get to a temporary yes set in clients that um, is a result of them believing your, your conviction, your earnestness about why this is a good course of action. But especially if what, you're, if what they need to do is something that actually requires some lifestyle change, um, you need to get them to tap into their own motivation. What is their intrinsic motivation for doing this? And, and not only their motivation, but you need to figure out whether they truly believe that they have what it takes. To, um, fancy term for that is self-efficacy. Do they believe that if they do this thing you're recommending, that it will result in the desired outcome? And do they believe they can do it? Hmm. If not, why not? And again, that's part of what a great advisor does is help to assess, help, help assess readiness to implement advice. Do, are you in agreement on this proposed course of action? Do you think you could do it? Can you, can you already foresee obstacles to your success? Would you like to um, address those obstacles now? What would increase the likelihood of your being able to follow through on this? And can we can we help harness those um, sources of support now before you leave the office today? These are things that skilled advisors know how to do. You had made a comment at the beginning about how you know it's really an individual and their history of money. Can you talk more about that? Like, what is what does that mean in terms of you know the client sitting across from you? Um, what do we need to understand about that to be great advisors or planners? You know, my biggest piece of advice to advisors, if I can only give one or two, probably one of the biggest ones would be um, to hush more, to just stop talking and start listening, and to learn the questions that draw 
draw clients out of themselves that make it easy to talk about money or if not easy, then at least uh, creates a degree of safety and trust and understanding um, and even excitement in your office about what is possible for them. Sometimes clients come to us with painful money legacies. They may have made mistakes in the past that they feel quite embarrassed about. They may have a sense that they're not where they should be um, compared to uh, their expectations of where they would be or, or ought to be at this point in life or compared to where they see their friends at this point in their life. Conversely, they may feel that they have been um, blessed with or, or cursed with a level of richness that is totally undeserved um, and unmerited and they, they don't know what to do with it and uh, they may feel quite conflicted about it. And so there's, you know, I've just, I've just highlighted a couple of the things that can make advising uh, both challenging and wonderful because of the complexity of people's relationships with money. Um, we can't just assume that everybody comes in believing that money is great and that more money is greater and that the ultimate alpha out of their work with you is that they'll get better returns. That's kind of uh, what a lot of financial advisors believe, but it isn't actually what a lot of clients believe, and it isn't their primary focus in coming to you. You know, often you have two people coming into your office too, so I imagine that each one of them has their own stories as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And of course, uh, one of the really challenging things is to figure out how how can you be the advisor to a couple who believe different things or want different things about the money. How do you how do you work to get them rowing in the same direction um, or creating enough space so that um, both parties can get what they need and want out of their engagement with you? You had talked about questions that help draw this type of um, conversation with clients out. What are some examples of those questions? In terms of the relationship with money, Hannah? Yeah, the information that we need as advisors to really help guide them well on the, like the complexity of their, their story of money. You know, one of the first things I ask is, have you ever worked with an advisor before? Or have you ever talked to anybody about money before? What went well in that relationship and what didn't go well? Many of your um, listeners will have the experience of inheriting clients from another advisor if they're um, coming into an existing advisory firm. Others may be out there um, recruiting clients um, cold, <laughs> um, trying to, to scare up clients that, that don't have an existing advisor. The other thing we know, however, is that um, about 70 to 80% of an advisor's new clients actually come because of a major life transition. Things like uh, marriage, a divorce, an inheritance, a child on the way. Um, and those major life transitions are events that actually change people's sense of identity. These are not little things. This is not like just getting a new, you know, moving from from one car to a different car. This is really um, the kind of dividing line between I used to be this, but now I'm this. I used to have parents, but now they've died and I've inherited this money. Um, 
and I'm without my parents. That's, that's a big shift in identity. And so when, when clients come to new advisors, um, it's often during these times of, of turmoil in a client's life. And the more that, a, that an advisor can find out about what's bringing you here now and what, what's happening in their life that led, you, led them to contact you and what is it that they're hoping to get from their involvement with you? What would be the absolute best thing that could happen as a result of their meeting with you that day? I know there's a lot of people listening to this right now who are hearing hearing everything that you're saying and just being like, okay, this is great, but how do we fit this in in our hour-long meeting? Is there a process around this? Like, Is this something that can actually be applied um, for the average planner out there mm-hmm. who's not, maybe doesn't have the counseling background? Right. And so what I'm trying to do is to make sure that planners don't believe they have to be counselors. I think that's quite a dangerous um, boundary violation. But um, what I can say is that especially in the first couple of meetings, Hannah, the big mistake that advisors make is they talk too much. They talk way too much. Um, they feel pressure to get through all of the stuff that's in their um, know your client protocols or that sort of thing. And as a result, they actually slow down the process of connecting and may actually um, blow the client relationship. So uh, the, the first thing is that they just need to ask some of those really important open-ended questions earlier, and then they need to learn how to hush and listen to the answers without interruption. Um, They need to learn how to set an agenda every single meeting, not just in the first one, and not to assume that they know what needs to be discussed in the yearly meeting, but to say, you know, as we meet today, I'd really like to know what would make this time together the best use of your time and energy and money, to just clarify that every time. So there are a few things that need to happen every session. And one final one that I would say is that if you're going to send anybody away to do anything, you really need to make sure that, that you have established their readiness to do it, that they understand it, that they agree it's the top priority for them, that they believe they can do it, and that you are prepared to support them through its implementation. You know, that's such an interesting concept of this readiness. How do you know when a client is just giving you lip service that they're ready versus them actually being ready? Let's take something like um, a client is overspending. That's one of the things that I think drives most uh, advisors (laughs) most crazy. Yep. (laughs) Um, And uh, something has come up where you, you know, you got them to agree that they're going to, um, stop overspending. So it it might be that, that broad. And um, you ask them, if you were to rein in your spending in this area, what would, what would be the advantage to that? How would that benefit you? And if they are giving you lackluster, sort of lukewarm answers, well, you know, I know it's really important that I do this. So I'll do it you can assume that there will be lackluster follow-up. And so what you want to do is really help people get to their own why. And if they are not 
dig in deep on this, you can say, you know, I'm sensing that you have some ambivalence about this, or it sounds like maybe you're not, you sort of believe intellectually this might be a good thing to do, but you're not quite committed to it. Do I have that right? And to be able to just work with people's ambivalence and not strong arm them into agreeing with you during the meeting, because you know that they're just going to, they're just going to fall off on the implementation once they leave. So if somebody is ambivalent or, you know, they're not going to make a commitment that's going to last on that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I hear you saying that you kind of push it a little bit of ask, you know, kind of calling it out, mm-hmm. not call, gently mm-hmm. calling it out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, not what do you do, but is, is that all you can do? Or is, is there just times when you just need to wait and just know that, you know, maybe in six months they'll be ready. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you can, um, you can ask, you know, what, is there something that you do feel ready to act on today? What, where is it that I'm off the mark? What, where is it that you are ready to take some action? So let's say that um, people do not feel that they can save any more than they are currently saving. We can often get them to pre-commit. They want to pre-commit to give a, f- a percentage of their future earnings so they, they, they can't do it right now, but they know that they're getting a bonus six months down the road um, or that they are expecting a raise um, three months down the road. And they will very willingly pre-commit a, a proportion of that future earning in the, in the office with you now. And um, you can get the paperwork signed for that. Um, and people feel really good about that. Um, and then you just need to make sure that you've got policies in place to help follow through with that, that, that you remind yourself, that your team is reminded um, to follow up with people when that thing is going to happen or when that um, inheritance is going to come through, that sort of thing. So that even if the conditions are not ripe for them to do the, what you feel is the most important thing right now, they may know that there are other things that they're absolutely ready to do. And advice that gets acted on or behavior change that is minor but successful is better than a proposed major change that never gets off the ground. You know, I have some clients who they cut back their spending, their plan works. (laughs) If they don't, it doesn't work. I mean, I guess we're giving them the hard facts um, of that information, but is there any way to... So, you know, is that a math issue? Um, is it that they don't get the math or is that, um, a self-control issue or is, is that a overwhelm issue and a not having systems mm. in place to, to do this thing? So again, often getting people to pre-commit to savings so that the first 5% of their paycheck just gets out of their bank account before they see it. That is the most successful strategy. Yeah. Bar none. But there are lots of other strategies that, that can be employed in working with. Um, we can take overspending as an example, Hannah, or we can take something like excessive supplementation of adult children's lifestyles as another example. Those are probably the top two um, challenges that advisors come to me with. So if we're dealing, if we go to the overspending thing, we know that, um, you know, can we get people to agree to put their credit cards away? 
because discretionary spending goes down by about 30% if you put credit cards away. That's a very simple little behavior change that is way more effective because, in, in fact, of its precision than you need to cut down on your spending. All we have to do is get people to put away their credit cards and use cash and great things start to happen. What are some of the other predictable mistakes that advisors make that you've seen in working with advisors? Um, in addition to talking too much, um, they talk too fancy. So they kind of forget what it was like to not know everything that they have come to know through the course of their training. The, the number of new terms that you learn in the course of your training as a financial advisor is in the thousands. And when that uh, specialized, really technical vocabulary slips unbidden into meetings with clients, you can really quickly overwhelm their capacity to understand and to follow you. But it's very rare that a client will say, hey, hey, hold on, I didn't understand a word you said there, or I don't understand that term. They will just let the conversation keep going, um, hoping that it'll become clear to them. But often it doesn't. When clients leave meetings feeling uh, like they didn't get what you said, they feel stupid. And that's not, a, that's not something they want to replicate. And so often they'll just vote with their feet by not coming back to an advisor who does that to them repeatedly. Again, it's, it's really critical during the first few meetings that you spend time figuring out what is this, this client's level of financial sophistication. Um, and understand that even highly, highly intelligent and well-educated people um, may not be able to follow what you say if you just um, give it to them rapid fire in a meeting without giving them supporting materials, and especially if you don't get them to say in their own words what it was that you're advising them to do and why. That's something that I do at the end of, of every client meeting. Can you tell me in your own words what we agreed would be the next step and why we thought that would be the case? Because if, if they can't go home and explain to their family, Hannah, why they're doing what they're doing, chances are they really didn't understand. Or even if they understood in the moment, as I said, they may well forget it. And so if you view yourself as a real partner in that um, adherence process in that process of delivering timely advice in a skilled manner. If you see yourself as, as a partner in follow through, then you'll make sure that you give them whatever they need for that long-term retention so that they can get home and, and remember what they agreed to do and why. Does that come across as condescending to a client, asking them to repeat what we agreed to in this meeting? Or is that appreciated by clients? Or how, how do you kind of balance that? Um, do you know the work of uh, Carl Richards, the guy who does the, uh, the little drawings in oh, yeah. uh, yep. the New York Times behavior gap guy? He has, I've heard him say several times that um, he'll submit a drawing to, I think it's the New York Times that they, they initially show up in. And he'll, and he'll think, Oh goodness, I, 
I'm going to get fired this time. This is such a stupid drawing. Of course, everybody knows this already. I'm going to be found out for the fraud that I am. And, and then, you know, as soon as the, as soon as this little drawing is published, people write back in and say, that is the best thing you have ever done. And, and so time and again, we're coming to understand that people love the experience of being able to understand complex materials. And the better you can get at both explaining it and ensuring comprehension, the, the more valued you'll be as an advisor. Giving people a 100-page financial plan is actually not a gift. Giving them a one-page financial plan is a tremendous gift. And that's what increasingly we're trying to get advisors to be able to do. And so advisors really do give clients a one-page financial plan. You know, you know what the compliance and the regulations around this stuff. Of course yeah. you're going to give them the 100-page plan because, you know, your neck would be on the line if you didn't. But what the clients will hold on to is what you drew during the meeting, that thing that you scrawled on. Or that one-page summary um, that you've typed up and prepared ahead of time that includes simple, beautiful graphics, if, if that's appropriate, um, and that uses their words. My, you know, my um, cottage dream, my um, early exit from hell plan. <laughs> <laughs> whatever, whatever words they use in their meetings with you, that's what you put on their plan. Um, and they, and they talk about how much they appreciate that. And it doesn't, it doesn't mean that this isn't a tremendously sophisticated or even complicated plan. The genius that you have is being able to take these complicated and, and technically um, brilliant um, plans to deal with their particular estate complication or their tax issues and, and really put it in terms that they can easily communicate to their partners um, or easily review when they get home and say, you know what, I really like this part, but I didn't like that part. Again, enhancing the partnership aspect of this, of this mm -hmm. alliance you have with them. One of the other pieces of your book is you talk about there's parts of advice that are just harder to follow than other pieces of advice. Mm -hmm. Can you talk more about that? Like, what are the harder pieces of advice to follow? Harder pieces of advice are certainly those that require complex um, lifestyle changes. Things that make them visibly different from other people. Things that are multi-step and things that they have to implement completely on their own with no supervision or support in following through. Those are the things that um, are most likely to get abandoned by the roadside um, unless you figure out how to change that. Can you give examples of what, what you mean by that? Well, let's take that overspending problem, for example. You know how earlier we were talking about um, the little tweaks that people can be sort of turned on to. That's an example of taking a huge, complex lifestyle change and just un, uh, revealing it kind of one step at a time. 
you know, I call it the dance of the seven veils, where you're just revealing a little bit. And once you get people, yeah, I can do that. You create momentum. You say once, you know, let me know when you've when you signed off on one click ordering, and I'll give you the next secret to the universe. And you know, you follow up in two days, and you say, "Are you ready for the next secret of the universe? Did you do this step?" And they'll say, "Yes." What's next? And and so it becomes. It's almost a gamification. It is really a gamification of the the stuff that they want to do and that was just nothing but pain before has now been turned into something that's really quite easily done because you've broken down this huge task into something that only takes a couple of minutes a day, if anything, if, if that. Not everything can be done that way, right? Like it's um, the overspending can be done that way. But um, let's say that the advice involves um, having a conversation that they've been avoiding for years with a business partner or with the children about what the estate plan is. And they've been avoiding having these conversations because um, it's going to cause conflict. That's That's another example of advice that's going to be very hard to implement. Um, because avoidance is such a brilliant strategy. It works immediately. <laughs> it, it, it's, um, you know, it just reduces all that pain. And so how are you going to overcome that particular adherence barrier? What are the strategies for getting people to do emotionally difficult things? Sometimes that can be in the office with you. You actually role play some of those difficult conversations. Maybe it's you help supply them with the words that they're lacking. Maybe you offer to bring in those adult children and help co-create the estate plan. Maybe it's that you refer them to a really fine estate lawyer. Or perhaps you offer to refer them to a therapist who can help develop skills both at managing the anxiety and at improving communication. But these are ways in which, you know, a really valuable piece of advice, like, you know, go have this important conversation, doesn't just become a useless piece of advice um, because they, they can't possibly implement it. By virtue of what you do in, in the office with them and your referral network, you help make this valuable piece of advice something that actually gets acted on. And that works to not only the client's benefit, but of course to yours as the advisor. When clients don't follow advice, when they don't keep their commitments to whoever it is they've made them to, they feel embarrassed and they they kind of avoid, they put off future meetings. Yeah, thought we were going to meet today, but uh, I wasn't able to do what I said I would do. And if, you, if you're not careful, um, you, can, you can completely lose touch with them, all because they didn't implement, uh, they didn't make good on their commitment to you, and they feel bad about that. So the more you can offer to help be there, not necessarily during the conversation, but that you can help anticipate where the barriers are, and then build uh, build the ladder to get up past that barrier, the more valuable you'll be to them. You know, we've talked a little bit before about, you know, financial planners aren't counselors. Like that's not what we're supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Um, the question that struck me was, how do you know if you're in over your head? 
for some of these conversations? Because these are these are some heavy conversations to have with clients. You know, it's important that you develop a really good gut check. If you're uncomfortable with the level of emotion um, involved, you can you can just sort of name it, Hannah. There's nothing wrong with saying, "Wow, this is this is really a, a difficult thing to contemplate, isn't it?" I am I am uncomfortable even as I imagine you trying to do this. And so I want to make sure that um, you don't go home doing to do something that you're not ready to do. What do you think would be useful to you in doing this? And so you by by checking in with your own gut and recognizing that uh, you're sensing a non-readiness or you you are worried, um, you can just bring that into the room, your own um, gut sense, your own intuition that perhaps this is something that needs somebody other than you, or that perhaps this needs a little more thinking before you send them home to implement on it. I always say that one of the, the most valuable things that any one of us has in our practices is our contact list that group of colleagues um, in, in aligned professions that we know to be ethical and competent, um, that we know would be, we would feel that we were putting our clients in good hands by referring them to these allied professionals. So making those referrals and offering even to facilitate a meeting with them is great giving people, you know, two or three names and making sure that you follow up on it. Cause even the best, you know, not, no one is a great fit for everybody. And so you may refer one of your clients to, to somebody and only to find out that, Oh, that didn't go well. And you want, you want to have access to that information. So you really want to make sure that you follow up and that if that didn't work, that you are able to refer to somebody else. I know that in some in some firms you have to be really careful about making those referrals. So I'll just um, I'll just acknowledge that that that's not even a possibility for some of your listeners. Um, in some, they actually have some of these allied professionals in in house. So you know you you may be, for example, um, an investment advisor, but there's somebody else on the team who's an estate planning expert, and you can just um, kind of hand the client off at timely junctures to do some of this uh, additional work. So for a lot of the planners who are listening to this, they may not be the lead advisor in these relationships, Mm -hmm. but they're seeing a lot of the problems that you're talking about and they want to help the clients, even though they may not be the ones speaking up in the meetings. Mm -hmm. What would be Mm -hmm. your advice to them? I think that the the new advisors who are sitting in on meetings, by just by virtue of being a new set of eyes and ears, they can often ask curious questions that uh, the lead advisor may not even have thought of. The new advisor can become experts at follow through. They can provide more of a listening ear when they do that follow through. They can provide yet another opportunity for people to let them know what they're concerned about or what's working and what's not working. Um, I love the fact that, that we're having um, senior advisors work with people um, from an entirely different generation and that um, we may be bringing in, um, you know, in, in 
the best situations were increasing the diversity of a firm by bringing in more women, by bringing in um, people of different ethnic backgrounds. Um, and, and that allows not just a transition of the firm, but a transition of clients from one generation of the client's family to another, knowing that they're going to be in good hands because these new people are on board. So these are all things that I think um, the new advisor can bring to a situation that's just such a, a great value add. Well, is there anything else as we wrap up? Uh, I don't think so. There's, um, you know, in my book, at the end of each chapter, I list a number of questions that are quite simple, um, but quite powerful uh, as examples of how it is that you can become more of an adherence partner with clients as, as ways of making sure that really great advice doesn't go wasted. And so I would just draw people's attention to the summary at the end of each of the chapters that um, provides some great questions that you can ask to um, further, further enhance your relationships. The College for Financial Planning is the oldest CFP education provider in the country and the exclusive home to professional designations like the CRPC and APMA. The college brings a classroom to your home or office with HD videos and streaming classes. Alumni from the College for Financial Planning report increases to their earnings, client base, and even their job satisfaction year after year. Learn how you can be their next successful graduate at cffpinfo.com. If you want to be a part of great conversations like these, be sure to join the FPA Activate community on Facebook. It's a growing study group for financial planning professionals, from students to firm owners, professors, and FPA board members. You'll find them all there where you too can lend your voice. We hope you'll join us and help grow the financial planning profession. Thanks for listening.